scientists who have studied Nehemiah to see what they might learn. He was an astonishing and an outstanding leader. But he was also a remarkable administrator, an immensely practical man, and a man who was able to achieve a great deal working through those under him. He was a godly man and a spiritual man, and there's one verse that's quite famous in Nehemiah, if you want to look at it, look it up, it's chapter 4, verse 9, where we see the spiritual qualities of Nehemiah joined together with his practical um, administrative and, and management uh, abilities. Chapter 4, verse 9, it's a famous verse, one of the most famous verses in Nehemiah, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard and day and night to meet this threat. So we see his spiritual qualities dependent on God and prayer to God on the one hand and practically appointing a guard to um, defend them. A very practical and sensible thing to do. You could see he had a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. As I say, chapters 1 to 7 record the rebuilding of the wall against considerable opposition. Then in chapter 8 we come to the celebration of the feast, and in chapter 9 we come to a great act of confession, a great prayer of confession. And I want to focus on, could say a lot about it, it's quite a complicated chapter, but I want just to focus on three particular features of this chapter. And the first one is to point out that it is a great act of worship. Substantially, the whole chapter is given over to a great act of worship by the people gathered together. Worship. Have you wondered what worship is? Well, it's giving God his worth. Saying that God and showing that God is worthy. That's where worship comes from. When we worship God, we give him the worth, the honour, the praise, the glory that is his due because he is that kind of a God. And as God reveals himself to us in the scriptures, as we learn more about him, as our knowledge of him and his kindness and his goodness deepens and enriches within us, so we want to praise him and worship him the more. The Swiss Protestant theologian Karl Barth, perhaps one of the greatest theologians of the last century, said this, and I have often quoted it because I think it's very good. Bart said, Worship of God is the greatest and most glorious of all human activities. Worship of God is the greatest and the most glorious of all human activities. And I think that's right. It's the greatest and the best and the most wonderful thing that we can do. The Church Father St. Augustine put it also in an equally famous quotation, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's something restless about us until we rest with God in our praise and our worship of him. As I say, as we come to know God, as we come to know more about God, especially as we see God in Jesus Christ, then we have a natural response to worship him. We want to turn to him. We want to draw near to him. We want to have communion with him and fellowship with him. We want to be with him in our praise and in our worship as we honour him and devote ourselves to him. Today is Palm Sunday and the next few days 
record the last weeks of our Lord's life before his crucifixion. And in that last week of his life, the week that we call Holy Week, a week of great solemnity, sacredness, we see revealed in the suffering of Christ and in his crucifixion. And then gloriously raised to life on Easter Day, we see something of the love of God towards us, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And we long to worship him. And this is a great act of worship that we have here in chapter 9. And I want to suggest that worship is something deeply satisfying, deeply satisfying and rewarding, even if it's not, as it often is, maybe not well done and not perfect, but worship is deeply satisfying. It's a wonderful activity in which to be engaged, and we see this great act of worship here in this chapter. The next thing I want to say about worship is it's communal. They gather together to worship. It's a public act of worship. Now I, of course, wholly accept that one aspect of our worship is personal, and it's individual, and it's private, maybe. We worship God, as it were, on, us, on our own, ourselves, and God together. I think that's good, it's clearly necessary, indeed it's vital, and we see much in the Bible of the saints who worship God in a personal, individual capacity. We think of Jesus himself, as the Gospels record, drawing aside from the crowds to be on his own, he draw, drawing aside to be, a, uh, to be in a solitary place to worship and to pray to God, his Father. So I've no problems at all about accepting that one aspect of worship is, is private, it's personal, it's individual, it's intimate. But to worship together is absolutely necessary and vital indeed if we are to grow in faith as Christians and grow in faith as a church. My friends, we need one another. Tempting sometimes to say, can't go to church today, don't feel like it, too busy, too tired, haven't got the time. But when we go to church, we're so encouraging of those around us, of other people. Whatever our state of mind might be as we come to worship, we are hugely encouraging and we are a real blessing to those around us who equally might be struggling with the motive to come and worship. The picture I like, the illustration that I like is a good one, it's of the fire, a fire that's burning with coals and sticks and logs. And you take a pair of tongs and you remove one of the coals, and you remove one of the burning uh, embers and set it to one side and you know what happens? starts to go out, and it goes black, and it goes dead. And I think that's a good illustration of how we need one another. We need to gather together in communal worship to encourage one another, to strengthen our fellowship, and to equip us for service. And that's what we have here. We have an, an act of worship that is a gloriously communal act of worship as all the people gather together. Last year, there was a book published just about a year ago, which hit the best, um, amongst the best sellers of Christian books, called The Invisible Church, by a man called Steve Aislaw. And it's quite an interesting book, 
I read it as I could with an open mind, but the thesis of the book is that there is an invisible church. Steve Aisthorpe, who was a sociologist, he's a Christian, did a great deal of research and a great deal of consultation, and the thesis of his book is that there are a lot of people out there who claim to be Christians, they tick the Christian box, they say they have a living faith with Jesus Christ, but they have no part or place in his church. They may have done once, maybe an incident happened that put them off the church many years ago and they've not been back. And this is what the book's all about, trying to analyse and trying to define this invisible church. I don't know what you think of it. I felt myself when I came to the end of the book that one matter that was not dealt with, which seems to me absolutely essential, <clears throat> is how you sustain your faith if you don't go to church. How can you sustain your faith year after year after year with all the things that trouble us and threaten us and challenge us and are difficult for us? How can you sustain that living relationship in God through Christ if you are never anywhere near the church to enjoy the worship of the church, to hear the word of God, to have the sacraments, etc.? How can you do that? And more importantly, how can you pass on your faith to the next generation if at no time you are in any way involved in the institutions and the organisations of the church? Well, this is a great act of communal worship. And the last thing I want to say about um, the aspect of worship, this great act of worship, is that it does follow the reading of the law. Now, we saw that again in chapter 8. The law was read and the people responded in celebration and with a feast. And that's just what we have again here in chapter 9. The word of God is read. And then the people respond. The word of God is read and the people see in the reading of the law that God is their creator and that God is their redeemer. And their response is to worship him. Their response is to worship him. If you follow the reading, you'll see that the reading itself, we're told, took a quarter of a day, which is three hours a day, is a 12-hour period. So for three hours they read the word of God, and then for three hours they worshipped God in this great prayer of confession. Now I don't think that it was a solid reading of the word of God. Interestingly, I timed myself in reading chapter 9 and I took eight minutes. Three hours is a long time. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 8, we're given a clue as to what actually happened. Chapter 8, verse 8, they read from the book of the law of, of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So I don't think it was a solid reading. It would be interspersed with commentary and explanation and exposition. And indeed that's where, from this passage and other passages, we get the tradition of systematic expository preaching, where a text is taken and it's expounded or it's explained. And I think that was what they did for the three hours before they turned to their worship and their confession. But it's a, it's a long service, six hours. I don't know how long you've ever been in a church service. I've done quite a number of services for three hours. Um, and interestingly, it's amazing how quickly the time goes by. And I was quite impressed that those who took part in the 24-hour vigil of 
prayer just last weekend, how many of them, perhaps during an hour or even more, had said how quickly the time went. So maybe this six-hour service really went past quite quickly. But it was in response to the reading of the law, the reading of the Word of God, and we should not underestimate the powerful influence of reading God's Word in bringing people to faith, teaching God's Word and expounding God's Word, and putting the Scriptures at the very heart, putting the Scriptures at the very beginning, and then seeing how we respond. So often we respond much more faithfully and much more obediently. It's an enormously important principle, I think, enshrined in this chapter, as in chapter 8. The law is read and the people respond. Let me say something now about confession. It's a great prayer of confession. And it begins with praise, with adoration, and then it moves on to confession. Pick it up at verse 5. And the main prayer passage there. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessings. <coughs> you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Begins, the prayer begins with God and with worshiping God, and being devoted to God, and honoring God. And the foundation of the prayer is God. The foundation of the prayer is God as creator, of God as giver of the covenant, of God who keeps his promises, of God who is honored for his faithfulness, and his righteousness, and his patience, and his compassion. The passage, the prayer, returns again and again to this honouring of God, this acknowledging of God. Just let me pick up one or two verses. Look, for instance, at verse <coughs> 17, halfway through. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Or verse 25, at the end of it. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Verse 28. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. Verse 31. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. You see how God is honoured. God is acknowledged. God comes first in the prayer. And this great theme runs throughout the prayer. But of course it is a prayer of confession. Let's just take one passage where they make this confession at verse 16. They, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. This great confession of their sin and of their father's sin. And sin is not an easy concept in the world in which we live, as I'm sure you know. The contemporary world is not comfortable with sin or with the notion of sin or with the 
idea of sin at all. Even within the church, it's sometimes difficult to address head on the implications of our human sinfulness and foreignness and the brokenness of our world. It's not easy to confess your sins. And it seems to me there are two reasons for this. One is pride. We're often too proud to say that we've done wrong, we've sinned, and we've broken God's laws and commands. Pride prevents us. The other reason is I think often we don't see our need. You see, sinners are other people. Sinners are the rapist, the terrorist, the child abuser, the city fraudster, the drug trafficker. These are sinners, not us. We're not like that, nothing like that at all. And so we don't see our need. And yet the world around us surely convinces us, the internet, the television, the newspapers, the world is, the world is full of evidence of our brokenness and our fallenness. I've quoted before that lovely quotation from G.K. Chesterton, the one Christian doctrine that needs no proof is the doctrine of the fall, for the evidence is all around us. And we might say it's all within us. But the law provokes confession. When we read the law, when we read the scriptures, when we see the goodness of God, when we see his revelation in Christ, as we will see it through this week as we come up to Easter, surely, as we see a holy, righteous, pure, loving, gracious God, we are provoked into an honest and a sincere confession. When we see God as he is, we see us as we are, in all our needs, in the problem that our sin creates. So it seems to me in this chapter 9, we have this wonderful act of worship, and something for us to learn there, and then this great prayer of confession. I want to add a third thing. It's also a passage, seems to me, to be a remarkable statement of history, because it represses the history of the ancient Jews, the history of the Israelites. It starts with the creation, moves on to the covenant given to Abraham, then the events of the Exodus under Moses, then there's the giving of the law, and the safekeeping of the Israelites by God in the desert, 40 years, and then they are brought into the promised land. And as they settle in the promised land, so begins that long, long period of disobedience and rebellion. This cycle of turning away from God, of falling into trouble and distress, and then turning back to God, and he sends a deliverer. And then the people turn back again to the false gods, and they turn away from God, and the cycle is repeated. And it's rehearsed here at great length in this prayer of confession. Just pick up at verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverance, who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. No wonder the whole passage ends that last line, we are in great distress. 
It's a rehearsal of a history, a history of sinfulness, of broken laws and commands, of disobedience and of unfaithfulness. And I think if we're honest, we know that we have a history of such things ourselves. We have a, an involvement across the years in disobedience and in rebellion, in lawlessness, and in all that offends and hurts and dishonours God. And will we have the courage to make that same kind of prayer of confession? I want to draw to a close and to say this. I believe that the whole of the Bible speaks to us of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we have Jesus foretold. We have the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, who is to come in the future. We have all the prophecies of the Messiah. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Jesus. The New Testament, of course, looks back to that first coming of Jesus and all that follows from it, all the consequences. And someone said, and I thought it was rather good, that the Old Testament is like half of a bridge. It's on solid ground on one side of the river and it's building out towards the other side but it's only half built. And you wonder, where is the bridge going to land? Where is it going to be secured on the other side? And of course that's precisely what we have in the Old Testament with the coming of Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour. So the prophecies in the Old Testament we find fulfilled in the New Testament, fulfilled in Christ. We find the promises that God makes in the Old Testament, we see that they are finally kept in Christ in the New Testament. And of course the problem of sin that we see so extensively set out in the Old Testament, not least in this chapter, the problem of sinfulness is resolved, that problem resolved in the coming of Christ and in his saving work in the New Testament. So we look to Jesus Christ and on the evening of Palm Sunday as we look for these next few days and remember the events of Palm Sunday when they welcomed Jesus as King into Jerusalem. Let us enthrone him as King in our lives. Let us look to the events of this week as they come to the climax on Good Friday and the cross and the crucifixion and the suffering and the passion and the glorious good news of the resurrection of Easter Day as we, as we look to that and think on that and meditate on that this week, let us enthrone Jesus Christ as our King and as our Lord, for he invites each one of us, he invites each one of us to follow him and to discover that he is indeed our Saviour and our Lord and our friend. An enemy God bless to us this reading of his holy word and this preaching. May the truth of it be laid in our hearts. May we be provoked and driven to worship you and to worship you in confession and to so find the peace passes all understanding in that forgiveness, that wondrous salvation wrought for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. So bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.